Hey, welcome to Audio Smut. I'm Caitlin. Pregnant. So babies being born, it's a topic that we accidentally avoid on Audio Smut. But the fact is, we have bodies that make us babies, and sex is usually involved, albeit in different ways. Sometimes the reality of babies is something that we want to ignore while having sex. We're taking great precautions to avoid getting pregnant or being deeply afraid after failing to take the precautions. Other times, the kind of sex that we have doesn't involve the possibility of getting pregnant, but we really, really want a baby. Other times, we have sex, we get pregnant, and we have babies, and it's great. Today on Audio Smut, we have three pregnancy stories that relate to sex in different ways. The first story involves a pleasant surprise. We don't want to see birth as a sexual thing, but actually, you know, it is. It's the same organs, it's the same uh, hormones, so it's, it is sexual. I just find it funny how the society just, you know, separated it. You know, like, how do we make babies, you know? So it's by sex, so it's, it's, just, it's just a continuity. It's like you can only talk of your birth if it was a disaster. I, I enjoyed it. It was beautiful. And it's like people don't want to believe it. You know, in society, we always say that, oh, birth is painful, birth is painful. And that is, is true. You know, that happens. There's all, a lot of other births who, who are very different. Between my, my two sons, uh, they're four years and a half apart, I realized that I wanted to have uh, like a really natural birth with a midwife uh, in, a, in a house birth, uh, in a birthing center. So I was really confident and I was really eager to, you know, for, for that birth. And he was also 10 days late. So I think that <laughs> that also played for the fact that I was really happy that it was finally happening. That was my uh, orgasmic birth, the second one. I had never heard of orgasmic birth, so I couldn't understand that I was going to have sexual pleasure like that. It started like just normal, it was fine. When the, when the contraction came, I felt that everything was, you know, I felt like I couldn't walk when the contraction was, uh, was going on. You know, I had to stop and breathe uh, heavily, but it wasn't painful. And then we arrived at uh, the birthing house. It's really a beautiful place, all in wood and everything. It really looks like a, like a room in a, in a house. You know, all the material that you see at the hospital, everything that they need is hidden. You know, you don't see, and they have a lot of windows, and it was a really beautiful, uh, shiny day. So, um, you know, there was a, this beautiful light coming in the, in the room and, you know, I, I really felt like I, I, wasn't, I was at home. You know, for a while I was uh, sitting on um, this big uh, balloon, you know, that we use for yoga and stuff like that. I was sitting on that and uh, I was, you know, I was doing fine. And then uh, at a moment the, the midwife said, do you want to go in the tub? And I said, yeah, I think that should be good. So I went in the tub and then um, really, I really, really enjoyed being in the water. And uh, I remember that I really, really enjoyed the bubbles. You know, when it stopped, I was like, okay, again, again, the bubbles. I want the bubbles. And that put me in a, in a state of really of well-being. 
you know, and when the contraction came, it became to be uh, to be more intense. And then at what point the the contraction were getting painful, but really a little bit. And the weird thing is that when the contraction started, you know, it was a little bit of pain, but then when the contraction was going down, it it became uh, sexual pleasure. So that was kind of weird. So as the, the contractions came, the, the pleasure was uh, getting more and more intense. And at one point, I started laughing because I, was, I didn't understand what was going on. So uh, I was laughing. I was really, really fine. I was really enjoying uh, the birth. And then um, uh, I felt the urge to push. So um, I came out of the tub and I pushed. And in two pushes, the baby came out. And when I felt this urge to push and this feeling that was passing through me, I felt like there was something bigger than me that was just pushing that baby out and it was incredible you know I never felt so much love and it was it, it was bliss really you know we say orgasmic birth but it's more than orgasmic it's more than ecstatic it was really a feeling of like I really really felt like a goddess at this moment I felt so strong and I remember in the contraction how I felt beautiful I felt uh, I felt so woman I don't know how to explain that but it was like oh my god I feel so strong and powerful and beautiful I never felt like that again. You know, I believe that, you know, I believe that every woman could have an orgasmic birth. Some people say, oh, because you're different, you know, or are you like uh, someone who orgasms easily? Or, you know, I've had that kind of questions, you know, like how was my sex life and if it was re related. But I, I don't think it's really related with the, with actually our, our real sexuality. I think it's re related to to really that moment. I remember that when I was talking about my birth, for a few years, people didn't believe me. And actually, for um, when the, the, the movie Orgasmic Birth uh, came out, then, um, then people started to believe me. Okay, so it's true, it happens, you know, it can be true. And then suddenly some people came over me and said, oh, you know, I had an orgasmic birth too and everything. So it's actually quite freaking, it just happens. But it doesn't mean that if you're in a certain mood, it's gonna happen, you know, it's not, you can't really plan it. So that was pregnancy number one. And I have to say that it makes me really happy that something universally understood as painful can potentially be orgasmic. Our next pregnancy did not involve sex, though there was one very fateful masturbation session and a parenting contract based on Black Panther wedding vows. I met Aaron on a spring afternoon, wandering with staple guns and packing tape, adhering anti-Israeli apartheid posters to the telephone poles of the Mile End. Aaron is a happy-go-lucky anarchist. He hosts his own radio show about ska, and he recently helped someone to become a mom. You need a sperm, you need an egg to make a baby, and I was like, all right, I can, I can back you up there, you know, so, yeah. When you say, you love me. 
My name is Helen. I'm uh, 37 years old. <laughs> I'm a queer woman of color. I live in Montreal. Helen was in a really serious relationship, and she figured that they would have kids together. But they broke up. There's that old cliche about the biological clock, and I don't know if that clock is actually biological or social, but it seems that there's some kind of clock. If you're a queer woman, maybe you've already given this a lot of thought. Maybe you've heard stories of going to a fertility clinic as a queer or a single woman, where they're trying for the life of them to figure out what kind of fertility, fertility issue you have. The quote-unquote issue is just that they're not sleeping with a man, like with a, a cisgender man. Look, I just want some sperm, essentially, right? I mean, I didn't want to go through that. And I also, I guess, didn't feel the need. I'm somebody that really believes in sort of not relying on institutions for things that we can just sort of do for our friends, for each other. She knew women who had gotten sperm donations from a person they knew, a friend of a friend, or a friend. They call them known donors. It was um, winter solstice. And then it was also, there was like a lunar eclipse. And it was like a blood red moon. It was like a beautiful night. Like we just stayed up for the whole night in the middle of the winter, like watching this lunar eclipse. Yeah, and then like I woke up the morning after that lunar eclipse and I like opened my email box and that was like the first email I saw. So our initial contact was by like voicemail and email? Uh, it was just like someone asking me if I'd ever thought about being a sperm donor and if I would consider being one. I was like, oh, I've never thought about it before because I've never been asked before. It's not always that easy to just kind of start going up to people and being like, hey, want to be my sperm donor? I was flattered uh, because I was like, whoa, someone thinks that like my DNA is worthy of something. This is interesting. They started meeting up and having conversations about what exactly it would mean to make a baby together. Aaron needed some time to think it over, and Helen gave him a deadline of a few months to decide. My dad was like, you know, you're going to be so attached to this baby. And I've, I've heard this a lot from friends who have had fathers who've like abandoned them in their lives. What if they develop this kind of like tight bond with you, but then they just feel like this sense of abandonment? Aaron weighed the concerns of the people close to him and decided that he was down. I think you phrased it as something like it just being the anarchist thing to do. Every time I thought about it, it's like, whoa, this is really exciting and awesome. And... So they drew up a contract. They had to agree on what exactly was expected of each of them as they embarked on this traditionally intimate bonding for life type situation. They had to agree on how the sperm was going to be delivered. Are you going to like masturbate like at the person's place or like at home or whatever? And she was just like, do it at your place. They had to agree on how long they were going to commit to trying to get pregnant. Part of our agreement that we'd worked out is that we would try for a year. This isn't usually a one-shot deal after all. 
and they had to agree on the boundaries of Aaron's relationship to the baby. Aaron's role as a donor, not as a father. What is an actual family? Like, that's not based on DNA, that's based on love. I don't own, like, my fingernails and, like, my hair or, like, you know what I mean? It's just, like, like, I don't own my sperm. And just understanding that separation between things that are physical and things that are emotional, right? Like, family is, like, an emotional bond and having a DNA bond with someone is, like, a totally different thing, you know? I had been tracking my fertility cycle, so I gave him, like, a heads up. So then we, like, had to coordinate our schedules. Like, the morning I did it, it was, like, early April, so it's still really cold like out. It was a Saturday, and it was a morning, so it was a bit slower. I just sort of had my morning, like, got up, like, had a cup of tea, yeah, whatever. Like produced my sample at my place, and then, like, had it in this cup. Because we talked about it before, we knew there was this sort of, like, okay, you're going to come over, you're going to give me the sperm, you're going to leave. <laughs> type. Like a plastic, like, hospital cup. And then... Sealed it up. Fresh sperm, like meaning non-frozen sperm, like non-sperm bank sperm, is only good for like a limited amount of time once it, once it's ejaculated. She's like, keep it as close to your skin as possible, just to keep it warm. And like I put it in a toque, and then I put it like um, inside my shirt, and then like put a jacket on, and bike like really fast down to her house. It was like a sunny day morning. But it was like cold, so like I remember worrying like, oh shit, like what if like the sperm dies, you know? So I just biked like super fast. So, you know, we said hi at the door and I think I said thanks, I hope I did. Then he left and I had a jar of sperm. <laughs> I lay down on my back, inseminated, like just put some uh, sperm in a syringe, well, all of it <laughs> in a syringe, and uh, put it in slowly over the course of a couple of minutes. Stayed on my back and just kind of hung out in bed, thinking pregnancy thoughts, you know, <laughs> I was trying to like get into it. They tried twice. The second time had gone pretty well. Around nine months later, Leche was born. I don't know how to express strongly enough the strength of that relationship. I mean, I imagine that most, if not all parents will just relate to that and I don't need to describe it, but... Uh... What kind of relationship am I gonna have with her? I don't know, like maybe, maybe she'll like really hate my guts. <laughs> I don't know. Like Helen and I would always joke cause she'd be like, like what if the baby doesn't like Scott? I'd be like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, like and that's fine, right? Like. Cause I'm like, I'm not her father. So it's like, those things can't really hurt me, you know? Or no, I would be hurt if she like hated me. I know this baby is going to be part of my life so long as Helen is part of my life. But it wasn't like I looked at it. I was like, oh my God, we have the same DNA. I'm in love with you. You know, like actually I was just like, whoa, you're a little baby who's like screaming a lot. Their relationship has changed. There's definitely a new bond, a new tie to one another. But at the same time, it stayed the same. Aaron's visited her baby twice. They see each other at activist events. We both believe quite seriously in community and in non-institutional way of living life. 
and I feel very lucky that Aaron chose to be part of creating my family in that way. Okay, so that was our second pregnancy, and we're moving on to the final pregnancy of the show. And it was the kind of pregnancy that happens in the throes of passion and ends up getting you into trouble that you never could have imagined. I would have been a phenomenal mother. The curiosity about love. Set me on this path, man. That shit is no joke. This is Maria de Jesus, also known as T.S. Tough shit. She insisted everyone call her T.S., even her mom. I substituted it for a lot of things, too sweet, whatever. Maria's mother still calls her T.S. to this day, with reason. She was always a bit wild. I, I was curious about life. And life had a lot of excitement to offer where she grew up. She lived in Los Sures which was what they called the south side of Williamsburg when it was Puerto Rican families that lived there. Maria's mother had a lot on her plate. She had four kids, and she was doing it all on her own. Her husband turned out to be extremely abusive, and when she left him, she needed to go on welfare to keep the family afloat. Maria was her first daughter. And when a young girl loves, oh my gosh, she loves for real, you know? It's not no lie. I wanted to know what this is really all about. The pools will open up late. I met him there. He was a lifeguard. And he was teaching me how to swim. They were all interested in him. It made me feel like very important. You know what I mean? This guy was also 24, college grad. Maria says he was a physical therapist, and she followed him wherever he went. This crazy I just wanted to breathe this man, you know? Like, I, I didn't know how I wasn't gonna be able not to. He got me, like, to go to his mom's house, you know? And um, they weren't in town, I think, and uh, he took me, I, they lived in the Bronx. So I'm on a mission with this guy out there. I had no idea, like, what was awaiting me, but I'm not going to say he made me a woman. He took my virginity. That's what he did. I think my mom had found out or something like that, like, like or somebody saying, you oh, know, I've seen your daughter, she looks pregnant, or... I was just walking around and I was like, yeah, I kind of think I am, but I wasn't sure, you know, I was young. And when I called him to tell him that I was pregnant, um, he denied that it was his. And I said, you know, you're the only one. This is your baby. But I wouldn't want you to be a father to my child. I didn't want to repeat the same thing and be a single parent. I, I saw the struggle of that, you know? So I, I didn't go that way. I just didn't. So um, I had this GYN here on, on Broadway that, you know, I was going to, and um, 
I guess they set it up, you know, to have the abortion. And the day that I went, I was, it was sad. I had no idea of, like, you know, at that age, emotionally, you don't understand the impact of the choices you make. You know, I remember the nurse coming to me and telling me, yeah, this is what you get for having sex at an early age. This is how you pay for it. And my mom telling me, no, don't do it, you know? But it was too late, you know? I'm already in bed with a fucking IV in my arm. You know, I remember coming out of it, cramping. And, um, you know, you're asleep while you're going through it. So what the fuck, you know what they're doing. You have no idea of what the procedure even entails. I wasn't um, able to ever conceive after that. The doctor, I believe that she botched me. I think that she was just like one of those people that um, clearly... Like, 15-year-old girls shouldn't be f***ing, you know? And I understand that. But who are you to judge? I would have been a phenomenal mother. And um, that chance was, like, literally, like, taken away from me, you know? Maria believes that on that day, the doctor intentionally rendered her unable to have children, but she never sought proof. Her subsequent infertility could have been an accident. Maria feels certain that it wasn't. She had heard stories from her peers about women being sterilized with or without their knowledge. I remember hearing stories or, you know, like in Puerto Rico or something, I here in New York, here in New York too that the doctors, that they were, um, um, like, practicing all these, like, birth control methods, you know, on, on the woman, surgically, and bullshitting them. Before birth control, abortion, and sterilization methods were available to the public, they were used by the state. Doctors in the 20s used them when eugenics was the latest way to improve society. Eugenics was about controlling genetics as a method of social change, and many U.S. states had laws mandating doctors to sterilize women who might give birth to undesirable children. Physically or cognitively disabled, unmarried women and poor women were some of the targeted demographics. Views about race got mixed up in there as well. Dorothy Roberts is an academic studying law and race. Well, I've written three main books in her book killing the black body race reproduction and the meaning of liberty she looks at the history of eugenics family planning and reproductive control in the united states the practices used in the eugenics era fell out of favor after world war ii but they didn't disappear some of the compulsory sterilization laws were still on the books because of the view by doctors that women of color, especially if they were welfare recipients, shouldn't be having children, they would sterilize them you know, coercively, either, for example, tell them if they didn't consent to sterilization, they'd lose their welfare benefits, or they wouldn't receive 
reproductive health services like abortion services if they didn't consent to sterilization. Sunflower County, Mississippi, 1961. Fannie Lou Harmer goes in to have a small uterine tumor removed. She comes out with a full hysterectomy without her consent or even her knowledge. Mrs. Ralph in Alabama believes she's being asked to sign a form for Depo-Provera injections for her two daughters, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice. Unable to read English, she simply signs her form with an X. Both of her daughters, aged 12 and 14, are sterilized. Boston City Hospital, a teenage girl 12 weeks pregnant, arrives to get an abortion. She's told it's too late and that a hysterectomy is necessary. A medical student asks the doctor about the extreme diagnosis. The doctor tells him it was for the experience. These cases are only a few of thousands. There's a, a history of the view that social problems are caused by the wrong people having children and that the government can therefore come in and keep them forcibly from having children through sterilization. There were a few legal policies regulating doctors' choices in the matters. On the contrary, legal precedent was in support of these practices. Doctors who, I'm not a psychologist, but I think they may have convinced themselves that they're doing good for society and for these women themselves. Legal action was eventually taken. The laws were changed after a class action suit in 1974. Federal District Court Judge Jared Jessel estimated that 100,000 to 150,000 low-income women and women of color had been sterilized under federal programs. Jessel outlawed the use of federal dollars for involuntary sterilization, and the lawsuit's exposure led to the requirement that doctors obtain informed consent before performing sterilization procedures. We're talking about the 1970s and 80s. It's not ancient history. People seem to think, you know, it's all it's all over with, but it isn't. It just, you know, it moves from one group of women to another. According to the Center for Investigative Reporting, doctors under contract with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation sterilized nearly 150 female inmates in 2006 to 2010 without the required state approvals. The argument for these practices is still about whether these women are considered fit to have children. Whether or not the decision about lifelong fertility should be in the hands of the state is a question that remains to be answered. Maria, for one, is very skeptical. And on that uplifting note, we end The Birth Show. This episode was produced by Mitra Kaboli and me, Caitlin Prest, with a lot of help from Candace Caskinet, Courtney Kirkby, and Julia Alsop. So Audio Smut is produced for free for you by us. And if you love what we do and want us to keep doing it, then, I mean, you could donate, which would be amazing, but you could also go on iTunes and give us five stars. That would be amazing. If you give us five stars, then more people will listen to us and, you know, we'll feel special and we can keep making audio smart. Everyone will be happy. 
Um, you should also follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you want to get updates and fun articles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's that's the end. That's the end of the pregnancy episode. Um, if you're feeling kind of sad or a little bit angry after that last story, which I always kind of do after I hear that story. Um, feel free to drop us a line at audiosmutradio at gmail.com. Uh, tell us how you feel about it. We'd be happy to have a conversation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>